Welcome to the Innovation and Government Show, sponsored by Kerasoft. Each month, we'll talk with industry experts who enable innovation and make government more responsive and secure by advancing key technologies. Now, here's your host, Jason Miller. Welcome to Innovation and Government. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Dan Woods, the Vice President of Shape Intelligence Center, Shape Security, now part of F5 Networks. Dan, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good to be here. Before we get started, let me set some context for our discussion today. Let me introduce maybe a new cyber attack term to many of you, credential stuffing. By some estimates, there are more than 75 billion of these attacks over the last two years alone. And again, some estimates say over the last year, U.S. firms lost almost $5 billion because of these attacks. Simply put, credential stuffing is a kind of a brute force attack where attackers take stolen logins and through automated tools try to force their way into networks. The basic premise behind these attacks, according to experts, are employees or customers can use the same username and password over and over again at different sites, and then there's too many to manage, and then they, when they get stolen or lost, these attackers use them to get into different networks and different systems. From a federal perspective, credential stuffing has not yet shown up on the radar of Agency Federal Information Security Management Act, or FISMA reports, but that doesn't mean that credential stuffing or other similar disruptive attacks aren't here today and increasing in severity. Additionally, as more and more agencies move services to truly online only, federal CIOs and chief information security officers have to consider how to protect citizens and other customers who may use similar passwords for multiple sites. There are steps agencies can take to mitigate these risks, and that's where my guest comes in. Once again, my guest is Dan Woods, the vice president of Shape Intelligence Center, Shape Security, now part of F5 Networks. Now, Dan, uh, this is a unique term. This is something that maybe a lot of my audience is not familiar with. Uh, again, when you look at the FISMO reports to Congress, you know, credential stuffing is not even in the top 10. It's a lot of email, a lot of spear phishing. So again, help us understand what, what credential stuffing is. Is it similar to password spraying? Set, set, the, set the, what we have to understand about this concept. Well, you described it quite accurately in your intro, but one detail that is often lost is that you can do everything perfectly and still be um, targeted with a credential stuffing attack. So, because it leverages what we call inherent vulnerabilities. Uh, an inadvertent vulnerability is something that can be patched, right? You know, like SQL injection or, or some, you know, misconfigured application. But you're, you're susceptible to credential stuffing attacks because you have a login form that is public facing. Um, that's it. If you have a login form that's public facing, then you can expect credential stuffing attacks. And by the way, we're, we're seeing, um, I think the number you, you mentioned at the beginning about the last two years, uh, in the in the billions, we're seeing two billion per day. In some cases, there might be one attack against one financial enterprise that reaches two billion in just in the day. It's these are remarkable in their size. One of the things when you talk about this idea and and how how it's it's inherent vulnerability. This is the idea that if I log onto a network and I have to register my username and password, someone potentially could be doing what? Are they t tapping into my keystrokes? Or are they just capturing all the data? What's happening? How, how does it? How, how do these attacks work? So a lot of these credentials are stolen from other enterprises that do make mistakes. Maybe they have a rogue insider or a misconfigured application, and somebody will get in and steal uh, millions of username and password pairs, uh, and then they'll start to use those in credential stuffing attacks against other enterprises. And after they use them for some number of months or even years, then they make their way on the dark web for every criminal to get their hands on and try them in additional credential stuffing attacks against 
you know, virtually every bank, airline, hotel, insurance company, a government organization. Uh, all it is is using those spill credentials to try and break into other accounts. And uh, we don't see the problem going away. We see it becoming more and more prevalent. And as you talk about becoming more prevalent, this is something that maybe a lot of agencies may say, well, this is not something I have to worry about. Because, you know, as I was doing research for a conversation, it said, you know, I saw one article that talked about the top five uh, industries that should worry about credential stuffing and, and the government didn't, didn't play into it. But it seems like this also could be an issue where foreign adversaries and others really are trying to exploit this uh, against the U.S. government. Yeah, they really are. And, you know, it isn't, um, a, a lot of times the, the misinformation is that, look, our accounts don't have anything of value. Uh, so why would an attacker try to take over the account or break into it? Um, well, keep in mind that, you know, burglars break into empty safes all the time, right? They do. Uh, they have to break in to see that there's nothing of value inside. So you have an account, an attacker is going to launch an attack and get in, He'll look around, see there's nothing of value. He might move on to a different target, but then another attacker is going to come and want to look in the same safe. So, um, yeah, I, I'd say the volume of attacks are, are probably lower if there's really nothing of value in the account. And when I say something of value, I mean, you know, uh, money would be the number one uh, most valuable asset. But frequent flyer miles, you know, uh, gift cards, loyalty points. But what the government offers is PII lots of PII in many of these accounts. That needs to be protected because this PII can be used to advance all sorts of other schemes, uh, social engineering in particular. Uh, I can think of one case uh, that I worked, for example, where uh, an organization used PII just to gain credibility during a phone call. That was it. So it, here's the analogy. If I, if I called you and said, hey, hey Jason, I'm uh, so-and-so from your, your mortgage. Can you make all your future payments to this P.O. box? You'd say, well, no. <laughs> Who are you? Uh, of course. But if I said, hey, Jason, this is uh, Dan from your mortgage company. I see that you've made uh, a few payments in the last uh, few months. They were a little bit late. Um, and why? Look at your interest rate. Your interest rate is uh, 6.5. We could do a lot better than 6.5. Uh, and your principal balance is still 623000 You want to consider a refund. Now suddenly I have inside information about your loan. And when I tell you, look, look, we're going to go ahead and refi you. We're going to put you on this uh, trial payment program. And all you can do is make your future payments to this organization. Three payments, uh, that's half of what you're paying now. They build a whole story around that PII and it facilitates social engineering. So that PII, medical information, all that needs to be protected. At the same time, I think your example is a really good one, but the government also is now doing more with people for online citizen services. So people are using multiple credentials. And, you know, if my credential is the same to log on to, you know, recreation.gov, which is just, you know, my way to look for, you know, uh, campsites or USA jobs. I want to look for a job in the government or see what's available. It could be the same credential that I'm also using for, uh, you know, my bank account. And, th and that's the other piece that can cause trouble that, okay, uh, there's nothing of value in, the, in this government safe, but it doesn't mean those, that combination doesn't work somewhere else. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, three of the, uh, I think, uh, five largest U.S. government organizations are our customer. And, uh, you know, in the beginning, oftentimes they thought, yeah, there isn't anything of value in these accounts. And they didn't think there would be much by way of credential stuffing. Um, but the, it was significant. And it's, it's quite typical that an enterprise grossly underestimates the size and scope of the problem. Uh, and the reason why is these attacks are now coming from uh, millions of IP addresses. They don't come from a dozen uh, IP addresses. They come from millions. 
and security operation centers across the globe, really, they've become quite um, comfortable identifying attack traffic based on uh, volume of transactions from IPs. I mean, web application firewalls, you know, they could typically identify the top 20, 30, maybe even the top 100 noisiest IPs. Uh, but they miss the long tail of millions of IPs that have maybe 10 or 20 transactions each um, because they don't, re they don't reach the volume to trigger any, any thresholds. So, yeah, it's very common. We will typically go in. Someone will say, hey, I think we've got maybe a 20 or 30 percent problem when it comes to automated attack. Um, and then we go online and it's over 90 percent. Our record is 99.9 percent .9 of all traffic was automated attack. And we're talking about just login. We haven't even talked about all the other uh, applications that are under a similar attacks. Dan, you bring up this idea of burglars breaking into empty safes. It's a fascinating analogy. But is, are any of these burglars in, in some ways a nation state looking for maybe safe that has maybe not, not as empty as we hope? Uh, there actually are nation states launching aggressive attacks against a lot of American interests. Uh, and we know this because the uh, criminal organizations are largely interested in money. Uh, but when you have highly sophisticated attacks logging into bank accounts but not monetizing, not stealing anything, um, you think about what, what would cause that. Um, when I was uh, at, uh, at the Bureau, uh, if I had access to bank accounts, it told me a lot about the individual. I mean, a lot. I knew where they shopped. I knew where they traveled. I knew a lot about them. So a lot of this is intelligence gathering, I think, by nation states. Uh, by What if they were getting into my hotel account? They'd see where I'm staying. If they get into my airline account, they'll see where I'm traveling. Um, so yeah, there's, uh, and we can always tell them because they're highly, highly sophisticated. They don't appear to be motivated by money, but instead by a gathering intelligence. So you mentioned the success, you know, 99% of all attacks. Is, is credential stuffing, does it work? Or, or, uh, it seems to me it does just based on uh, the fact of how popular it's become over the last year or two. Or two. But what is the success rate? Well, when I said 99.9%, .9%, it was of all traffic was coming. Yeah, so coming to that very, side, right? yeah, very, very little of it was actually human traffic. Uh, the success rate varies. Typically, if it's just a, a, a credential dump from the dark web, then typically 0.1 to 3%. And uh, when you're trying tens of millions or hundreds of millions of uh, username password pairs, you end up compromising a lot of accounts. Uh, but we've seen bad actors take steps to raise their the log and success rate. Um, for example, they know that if they use these, you know, uh, 20 autonomous systems from these, you know, uh, 20 countries, and they launch an attack that in the aggregate has a 0.1% login success rate, they know that's anomalous. They don't want to be anomalous. They don't want, to, they don't want their attacks to be detected. So they're looking for ways to raise their uh, login success rate. And one way they do that is by launching an attack against a different uh, application first, like say, forgot password. If I take all the usernames I have and use automation against a forgot password workflow, depending upon the feedback that forgot password gives, uh, if it tells you whether or not the account exists, then you'll see an attack against forgot password as a way to identify which of the millions of credentials should I even try. Because if the account doesn't exist, then why try the password? I'm just going to negatively impact my success rate. Uh, we see in, uh, also these sorts of attacks against the create account endpoint. What happens when you go to create an account that already exists? You get a, you get a message that says that account already exists. Well, so you do the same thing. You use uh, forgot password or create account just to enumerate all the accounts that exist in your collection, and uh, then you launch an attack against login, and you're gonna see a higher success rate. 
Uh, and then we're also seeing higher success rates when these attackers evolve to uh, human click farms, manual fraud, because now they're getting their credentials from, you know, malware, like your earlier question, uh, malware uh, from, uh, from computers, keystroke grabbers, or from uh, phishing um, campaigns where they have a high degree of confidence in their in their uh, username password. Uh, uh, so then they'll, they'll start using human click farms. They'll have a much higher login success rate. It always amazes me when you when you just describe the way they're taking these millions and millions of, of stolen usernames and passwords and saying, well, we don't want to be seen, so we'll, we'll kind of come from the left side and we'll come from the right side, and the whole goal is to get down the middle. Is is this why that these this this has become such a more popular attack vector? Well, it's the prevalence of botnets too, right? Uh, botnets, open proxies, VPN services. It's easy now to come from millions and millions of IP addresses. You know, um, it, it wasn't so easy years ago to, to do that, but now it's quite easy. So you could even come from millions of residential IP addresses. You don't even have to come from, you know, the Tor network or anything like that. Uh, so it's easy to, uh, to circumvent traditional countermeasures because of just how distributed these attack infrastructures are and how, how quickly you could change from say attacking from Eastern Europe to from uh, to attacking from California. Um, in fact, a quick uh, anecdote, we had a government customer who uh, was under attack. So they decided to block all traffic outside the United States, all of it. The only way you could uh, access the account is from within the United States that they were in that much pain. They took that drastic measure. The next day, the attack uh, resumed from within the United States. So it's really easy for these criminal organizations to uh, manipulate their attack infrastructure. So it isn't something you can mitigate on. Fascinating conversation. Dan, we're going to take a quick break. We can come back. We can continue our conversation and figure out how to deal with this new attack vector. You're listening to the discussion Innovation in Government, sponsored by Kerasoft on Federal News Network. F5 powers applications throughout their code to customer journey, providing the user experience and security required by federal agencies to accomplish their missions. Together, F5 and Shape deliver an AI-powered, cloud-ready, end-to-end application security solution, reducing complexity while better protecting your sensitive data and mission-critical applications from hostile adversaries. Start your application security transformation today at f5.com federal. That's f5.com federal. Welcome back. You're listening to the discussion Innovation in Government, sponsored by Kerasoft on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Dan Woods, the Vice President of Shape Intelligence Center, Shape Security, now part of F5 Networks. Now, Dan, before break, we're talking about this idea of credential stuffing, getting to understand what that is and why it's such a new threat vector. You mentioned this idea of the bad actors going after forgot password or create account endpoints. But this is not just about login either. I mean, other applications are targeted too. Walk me through some of those other applications. Uh, sure. So some of them are like at insurance companies. If you want to get a quote uh, for insurance, life insurance, auto insurance, typically there's a workflow you step through where you're answering a bunch of questions. We're seeing heavy amounts of automation against those endpoints. And uh, the insurance companies are quite concerned because think about the millions of dollars they spend you know, uh, developing premiums and then a competitor comes along or a third party and really reverse engineers uh, all of their, their pricing. So that's one concern. We see fare scraping at uh, hotels and airlines. Uh, in fact, one hotel, once, uh, once the uh, room was the date and the, the, uh, the dates for when they were going to check in and out uh, and, the ho and the hotel property was selected by the uh, shopper, uh, the room was held for, for 15 minutes to give the shopper an opportunity to enter in their credit card. Well, 
when you use automation to do to, to fair scraping, it locked up their entire inventory for 15 minutes. So huge, uh, huge impact. Um, something else your audience will uh, will certainly be able to understand is gift cards. I think everybody probably has a gift card or two, a store value card uh, in their wallet. Uh, there's places all over the internet where you can go to check the balance on those. And uh, those are under heavy attack. All you really need to monetize one of those is the gift card number and the PIN. So they'll just go to a check gift card balance endpoint and just throw every possible gift card number, every possible PIN at it until they get one that has store value in it. Uh, so yeah, there's uh, uh, quite a lot of uh, automation against virtually every application across every vertical. Uh, one thing that impresses me about these criminals is they are uh, they're creative and they're persistent. From a federal government perspective, you talked a lot about airlines and hotels. Now, uh, you know, GSA, for instance, runs the, the airline program, the, the government-wide hotel program, government-wide airline program. There's other things. Is this something that there's also happening across the government networks, not just you know, these consumer sites that have a lot of traffic, but the federal sites too. I mean, is that something that we can, can as, as someone who speaks to the government professional, the, the CIOs and CISOs, is there something that they can kind of keep in mind as, as they're setting these things up, but also using? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I'm, I'm intentionally using, you know, commercial and private sector examples because I can't, I can't use the examples from our government customers without revealing their identity. It's, it's uh, some of the things that we're protecting, you know, if I mentioned what they were, it would immediately identify the enterprise. So I'm trying to avoid that. But uh, the, the, the short answer is every single government organization uh, is likely under some sort of automated attack. Any public facing, and we're not just talking about consumer logins or uh, we're talking about partner logins, vendor logins, supplier logins, contractor logins. Any public facing login uh, will be sought out and, and attacked by these fraudsters. And, you know, I just, I do threat landscape briefings for many uh, government organizations. I just did one this morning and uh, I spent all weekend just analyzing their web and mobile applications. I must have found uh, probably 10 applications eight to 10 applications that are vulnerable to automated attack and likely being attacked uh, right now as we speak. All right, good, good. appreciate your sensitivities there, but obviously uh, just as scary when you when we hear what's going on. So there's this thing about the automated attacks that they're, they, are they nearly invisible to a lot of uh, agencies and a lot of organizations? Because as you described in the earlier segment, the way that they are, or managed by bots. The fact is they're not coming from an IP address that's hitting a, a certain network or certain a portal, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of times an hour. Is that why that makes them invisible? Or are there other reasons why these, these types of attacks can be invisible? The best way for me to answer that is to talk about how, how attackers evolve because they don't, they don't retool, they don't become more sophisticated unless they have to. There's just no reason to spend time, money, resources developing a better, more sophisticated tool if you're not being mitigated. So in the beginning, they'll use tools like Sentry uh, MBA or even Curl uh, just to launch a network level attack against the endpoint. And these tools, they're not browsers, they just replicate the network traffic that browsers generate. So it fools an origin server into thinking that it's a browser. Now, they don't generate mouse movements or keystrokes. They don't execute JavaScript. So defeating them is actually quite easy. Most enterprises will be able to see a huge spike in traffic and then issuing a simple JavaScript challenge would stop that attack. But once that happens, then they evolve to using headless browsers or, uh, or tools called Selenium. 
or MIT Sekuli. These are automation frameworks. They do execute JavaScript. They do uh, allow you to generate mouse movements and keystrokes. So in the beginning, they will not typically be very sophisticated. Yeah, they're executing JavaScript. They might uh, move the mouse, but it's in a perfectly straight line. They type maybe 15 uh, keystrokes in under 30 milliseconds, things that are obviously synthetic. But if you don't mitigate them, then that's all they're gonna do. And they can launch large volume attacks. As soon as you mitigate them, then they retool. They become better at imitating humans. They started adding entropy to their mouse movements and their keystrokes. In the beginning, they're not very good at it, but if you continue to mitigate them, they continue to evolve and they continue to get much, much better at it. Eventually, if they have no success being, uh, at doing any of if they're not successful at all uh, by going through this evolution and they're never able to successfully launch an attack, that's when they resort to uh, human-enabled, uh, human-powered attacks where they're using human click farms. We're talking about dozens, hundreds, or even more than a thousand humans sitting in some facility uh, somewhere, or maybe all working remotely. But they are engaged in the same sort of uh, same sort of attack traffic. So that's how the attackers evolve. Now, uh, being able to identify the attack is one thing. Being able to prevent the attack is an entirely different thing. Many security operations center can see. The, you know, the 30x spike in traffic. They see it. They know they're under attack. But typically, they'll start trying to block it by IP address or by user agent or by country or by autonomous system. Well, these are things that attackers can change very, very quickly. So they, they do. They retool very, very quickly. So seeing the attack is, is one thing. Blocking it is entirely different. Once, um, you know, you've mitigated attackers over and over and over again, and they reach kind of the peak of sophistication, that's when they're invisible to the current enterprises. They're just invisible. They're coming from a million IP addresses, 10 or 15, maybe 20 transactions from each. Nothing about them appears synthetic. They look human, there's entropy in their mouse movements or keystrokes, but you know, we, we can typically find them for, for one reason. The bad actor is trying to blend in with the noise, but he has no idea what the noise looks like. That's, that's why we're always gonna continue to win. We collect a lot of signals, a lot of signals about um, everything inside the browser, everything maybe in the device, and we're looking for lies. We're looking for any inconsistencies, and uh, we, we've so far we've been very successful finding them. Dan, you've uh, officially scared me. I'm never going to a website ever again, right? Because everything I go to feels like I'm going to get uh, my uh, my password taken. So. What can agencies do? What can organizations do to really protect themselves? I mean, is this all two-factor authentication? Is there more? No, actually, two-factor authentication is, has a really important use, but it needs to be used sparingly. Um, you know, you, you don't want to just force 2FA across every single person who's logging in. It just creates too much friction. You want conditional 2FA. You want, you know, this, this, there's something unusual, something suspicious about this transaction. Let's uh, trigger a second factor of authentication. Uh, we see a lot of uh, enterprises trying to use CAPTCHA, but uh, there's a lot of third-party companies who will just, they have human click farms that solve CAPTCHAs all day long. Uh, one of them is 2CAPTCHA in Russia. I actually went to work for 2CAPTCHA for a couple of days solving CAPTCHAs. I wanted to get a full feel for the experience of uh, solving CAPTCHAs in this way. And I must have solved 60 or 70 CAPTCHAs and I hadn't earned a penny US yet. So it wasn't the kind of thing that was going to uh, generate a, a secondary income for me and my family. But it was fascinating because they train you. 
uh, during the uh, pro hiring process, they give you this, this training to teach you how to solve CAPTCHAs. And I badly needed the training because I wasn't actually very good at solving CAPTCHAs. But the point is, is CAPTCHAs, the, bad actors can, uh, you know, go, they're a speed bump to bad actors. And all they do is create friction for, uh, you know, legitimate, um, you know, customers, if you will. So yeah, two-factor authentication, uh, use sparingly. Uh, CAPTCHA, throw it out. Knowledge-based authentication, get rid of that. Follow the NIST guidelines uh, because they're, they're well thought out. Uh, but the really only surefire way of protecting yourself from credential stuffing is to take down the login application or you, know, you, you engage a, a somebody like Shape who specializes in protecting enterprises from those sorts of attacks. I tell you, I'm a little surprised that you said you know, use two-factor only you know, conditionally or sparingly. Uh, it feels like nowadays everything is moving toward that second factor. I mean, if you, for instance, go to, I mentioned the USA Jobs website, they're using the login.gov and you got, they send you a, a text uh, to your cell phone. If you go to the gas station, you put in your credit card, it wants your zip code. It feels like two-factor is starting to come around. Uh, give me a sense of why maybe you think that is, you got to find the right balance of two-factor and, and other ways. Well, two-factor, think about it. If I log in with, uh, if I try to log in with a correct username and password, then uh, second factor authentication is triggered. If I log in with a, I try to log in with a bad username and password, then I'm told bad username or password. So the server's responding two different ways. Um, and as an attacker, that's the answer I'm looking for. I want, I'm, a credential stuffing attack isn't about getting into the account, it's about verifying credentials. Now that I've verified the credentials, now I can sell those to uh, somebody who specializes in how, get, how to get that second factor of authentication. There are people who are quite good at getting uh, access to text messages or SMS, or they're quite good at social engineering, uh, the second factor of authentication. So we, we do think that uh, second factor authentication certainly makes ATO harder, but doesn't always have an impact on credential stuffing because you know, the origin server still responds in a way that tells the attacker whether or not the username and password were correct. Uh, so yeah, and it, it just creates a lot, of, a lot of friction. There's a lot of cost associated with it. And if you could have uh, the same level of security without that level of friction, then I think most enterprises would opt for that. There's definitely times when I feel like that second factor is just a, a roadblock, absolutely. But I understand at the same time, it's important. There, there are things that are important about it. Dan, we're just about out of time before I let you go. I want to bring up one other piece to this discussion, which is the role of artificial intelligence, machine learning, because you hear a lot about that when it comes to cybersecurity. How do you see those two emerging technologies really helping agencies protect themselves and organizations deal with whether it's credential stuffing or another, other, other types of attacks? You know, I, uh, I have somewhat of a controversial opinion on AI and ML because every time a vendor uses those phrases, I roll my eyes. Um, to me, they overuse it, they misuse it, and if they could just throw in the term blockchain, it'd be the trifecta. Uh, the fact is, Shape is quite good at AI ML. You know, we were in the top 100 according to Fortune uh, in the world, so we're quite good at it. But the fact is, AI and ML is not ready to make real-time determinations, real-time decisions on behalf of you know looking at signals and, and whether or not to block somebody now it's quite good at firing off alerts but you have to have humans who are going to look at those alerts and make sure that it's it's ai and ml making good decisions otherwise it's not going to improve it's not going to get better so the idea that somebody's going to throw some ai and ml system at it um look that's that's not uh i wouldn't count on that you need humans you need carbon units uh to uh, weed out any false positive and false negatives 
All right, very good. I know we could delve into that a little uh, deeper, but unfortunately we are out of time. So let me thank my guest, Dan Woods, the Vice President of Shape Intelligence Center, Shape Security, now part of F5 Networks. Dan, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you, Jason. You've been listening to the discussion, Innovation in Government, sponsored by Kerasoft on Federal News Network. For more on this discussion, visit federalnewsnetwork.com and search innovation. Thank you for listening to the Innovation in Government show, sponsored by Kerasoft on Federal News Network. The entire discussion can be found on demand at federalnewsnetwork.com, keyword innovation.